0: Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger, and I am director of the forum. this is your first time joining us, welcome. The Westminster Town Hall Forum is based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience to address the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All of our programs are free, in person, as a live stream, and here as a podcast. And that is all because of individual donors who support these programs. That is what powers the Town Hall Forum. Consider making a donation to support the Town Hall Forum today. You can do that very easily on our website, westminsterforum.org. And it really does help make sure that these programs continue and continue being free and accessible for all. Thank you. While you're on our website, you'll also be able to find our entire archive of more than 40 years worth of talks by some of the most interesting and influential people in the world. Again, visit WestminsterForum.org where you'll find our archive of more than 300 past programs. Today's forum with author and women's mental health specialist Dr. Pooja Lakshman was recorded in front of a live audience at Westminster Presbyterian in Minneapolis on May 2nd, 2023. The first voice you'll hear is Senior Minister and Forum Moderator Tim Hart Anderson.
1: And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's Westminster Town Hall Forum speaker. Dr. Pooja Lakshman is a board-certified physician and psychiatrist a clinical assistant professor at George Washington University and a New York Times contributor. Dr. Luxman serves on the board of directors for the Maternal Mental Health Leadership Alliance, a national nonprofit dedicated to furthering maternal mental health policy. And she's on the editorial advisory board of Clinical Psychiatry News. She is the founder and CEO of GEMMA, G-E-M-M-A, the first digital education platform dedicated exclusively to women's mental health, centering on inclusion and impact. Dr. lakshman is the author of the new book, Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. Please help me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Pooja Lakshmin.
2: Thank you, Tim, for that lovely introduction. And it is such a pleasure to be here this afternoon with all of you. Um, I want to just give a a very um, hearty thank you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum for having me. Um, I'm not intimidated or nervous at all that Cornell West is the next speaker in May. (laughs) Um, And and yeah, thank you to all of you who decided to show up today in person and, and for folks that are watching on the live stream, too. Um, So our conversation today, I've decided to set it up in three acts, kind of riffing off of This American Life. Um, Act one, I'll tell you some stories about brave women who I've come to know. Act two, we'll talk about the problem with commodified commercial wellness. And then act three, Will cover eudaimonic well being and the topic of my book, Real Self Care. Like Tim said, we won't cover, we won't get to everything in my prepared remarks, but I'm very excited to dive into QA and, and continue the conversation over lunch too. So, Act One Two Stories, Two Women. The first is Sanjana. Sanjana is a woman that I met in 2016 when I was a psychiatry resident at George Washington University. At that time, I was very interested in global mental health, and I was able to secure a very, very small stipend to do a very, very small research project in my family's hometown of Bangalore, Bangalore India. Um, my parents were both born in Bangalore. Um, and, and by research standards, this was not a big thing. This was a, a really small seed. But in terms of my knowledge and my understanding of mental health as a young psychiatrist, it was profoundly impactful. So in this research project, I would be interviewing eight women who lived in a rural village outside of the city of Bangalore. And, and for those of you who don't know, Bangalore is sort of like, it's like the Silicon Valley of India. Lots of tech, a very booming city, but this village about 50 miles outside of the city was rural. And so Sanjana was a mom of three girls, and she was a patient in the community clinic that was run by the research institution in Bangalore. And this clinic treated patients who had depression, anxiety other mental health conditions. Sanjana took multiple buses, traveled for a whole day to come to this clinic and get treatment. And I mentioned that she had three daughters because in India, having a daughter is worse than having a son, right? Um, There's still huge amounts of discrimination for girls. And when you have a daughter, you have to get them married. And in order to get them married, you have to have enough dowry. Dowry is the money that you pay to the husband's family to help them take care of your daughter when she enters their family. The other piece of information that's helpful to know is that in this clinic and in this community, the average uh, grade or level of education for the women who were patients there was fourth grade. Most of the women had gotten married before they were 20 years old. So quite a few gender disadvantage factors. And and that's kind of a a fancy word for, for patriarchy, right? And systems of oppression that we see all over the world. In research, we call that gender disadvantage. So for Sanjana, on one hand, she was quite lucky because she had been allowed to stay in school until she was in 10th grade. So that put her a little bit above the norm. But on the other hand, she had three daughters. So that was, that was kind of a bad draw for her. Now her family worked in the power loom industry. And so power looms are these huge, big, loud machines that are used to make saris, um, to spin the, the silk for the saris. Saris are the gorgeous, long pieces of cloth that Indian women wear. Um, and so uh, they they worked in the power looms, and she developed migraines, headaches, because the machines were so, so loud. And so she came to the clinic to get help for her headaches and also to get help for the fact that she was fatigued and tired all the time. Her muscles were aching everywhere. She never used the word depression because that's kind of a taboo word to use but she had all of these other physical complaints. And she was trying to get help, and it was a risk for her. She was really brave because if anybody in her family found out that she was taking medication or she was talking to a psychiatrist, that would bring a lot of shame onto her, which could then transfer to her daughter's marriage prospects. So it was a bold move for her to decide to get help. So that's Sanjana, and we'll come back to her story at the end. And then there's Michaela. Michaela was a patient in my private practice. She lives in Washington, D.C. She's a professional woman, well-educated. And she originally came to see me for treatment of her obsessive compulsive disorder, which we got under control with medication, with psychotherapy. And then we turned towards some of the harder questions. What does she want for her life? How does she make time for herself? She had two teenage daughters that she was co-parenting with her ex-husband. How does she fit herself in? What really brings her joy? Where does she ascribe meaning? All those types of easy things (laughs) to think about. And we were doing pretty well. We were making progress. Um, She had decided to save up some money to take some community art classes. Um, She was somebody who really loved art, and previously, when she was younger, had dabbled in different types of artistic pursuits, and so she was really excited about this. But then catastrophe struck. Uh, Her mom unexpectedly passed away, and her father, who was quite ill, um, needed to move in with her. And when I say needed, I mean that that was what the expectation was in her family structure. So Michaela um, was a black woman. She had two older brothers. But she, as the, the only daughter in the family, the strong black woman, was always the one that was stepping in to take care of everybody else. She was lending folks money. Every Sunday, every Sunday, everybody came over to her house for dinner. She planned all the vacations, right? So when kind of chaos struck, Michaela was the one who was expected to sort of step in. And so she asked her dad to move in with her. And, and he had mobility issues, so the money that she had saved to spend on herself, on these art classes, would have to go to doing a renovation in her condo. So we were kind of stuck with this hard decision. You know, like, Was it possible? Like, how, how does she actually take care of herself? Can she do something for herself in the context of having to be the one who is responsible for everybody else in her family, for having this duty that she wants to uphold, and for living in this framework where as a woman, as a daughter, as a girl, it's expected of her to provide for everybody else. So I'm not trying to equate the suffering of a black professional woman living in Washington DC with the suffering of a woman in India who lives in a rural village. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that no matter what continent you live on, oppression and misogyny makes you feel small, makes you feel like you don't have choices and that you have to contort yourself to live within and uphold these power structures. So, Act Two: the wellness industry. So, if you live in America, the solution to Michaela's problem is to do a juice cleanse, um, you know, <laughs> sign up for a new exercise program, buy a bullet journal—you um, know, any number of products, services that are sold to you on social media. Um, and and that's what we're that's what we're kind of expected to believe in and and that's where we're supposed to get our salvation so to speak as women the the statistic for the global wellness industry's worth in 2020 it was 4.4 trillion dollars so this is a business Right. This is an entire economic system that has built itself around telling women that the problem lies inside of us, and that we can buy our way to the answer, um, that we can buy our way to feeling better. And the issue with this is that when we turn to commodified wellness, we're placing the burden of change on the individual, and we're completely exonerating the larger social structures that caused the problem in the first place. So we live in a country where 30 million Americans don't have health insurance, where 25 percent of American workers aren't able to take a paid sick day, where if you're a black woman in America, you have to work for 19 months to make the same amount of money that a white man will make in 12 months, right? These are huge, powerful forces that are embedded into the entire way our economy and our society was set up. And so when the answer is a bubble bath and a glass of wine, I find that to be condescending at best, but at worst, manipulative um, and and quite destructive, actually, to the self-worth of my patients. So I come to this message from my lens as a psychiatrist who takes care of patients, so who has patients who come in and say things like, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, and I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my phone that I know I'm supposed to be using, (laughs) but I can't find the time. You know, and the last thing I feel like doing is meditating. So I'm coming here from that that lens, where in my clinical practice, I'm I'm basically screaming all the time to my patients, like, this isn't your fault. Um, But I'm also coming to this message from a a very personal place. Um, And I've found that as I've been on tour for Real Self-Care, that it's really, really critical for me to share my personal story with wellness. The reason that it's so critical is because I'm modeling for all the other women out there that are listening, that are reading, that are here. Um, I'm modeling compassion for myself. And, and we need to have compassion for each other. So I'm going to share a little bit of my own um, journey with wellness and, and the mistakes that I've made and, and where I went off track. Um, and I ask you to receive it with compassion. And. The first bit of this story, the, the story, to be clear, the story is about me blowing up my life when I was 28 years old. But the caveat or the the footnote is that um, I also want to acknowledge that I had the privilege of being able to have an existential crisis because of all of the sacrifices that two generations in my family have put forth ahead of me. So we're talking about global mental health today, and we're talking about lessons learned. So I wanted to bring this in. My grandfather um, came to America in in the 1940s for the first time. He was a research professor of pharmacology. He was a scientist. And he came to the States in the 40s to study. And then he came back in the 1960s and, and was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he came because he was frustrated with being denied opportunities in India due to the caste system. So he came to America to be able to achieve his goals. And, and he went on to to publish papers in places like Nature, no big deal. Um, and and um, when he came in the 60s, he came with my father, who was about 10 at the time, and, and went on to become an anesthesiologist and Marry my mom, who left India when she was just 23. She left her whole family behind and, and came to this new country. And they built a life which allowed me and my younger sister to graduate from prestigious schools, to not have student loans, for me to go to medical school and not have student loans. That's huge. And so I have so much gratitude for that. And, and as I tell this story, I want to acknowledge that I'm only here with the lessons that I've learned because. Of the sacrifices that their generation made for me and my generation as a geriatric millennial to um, make my own meaning and find my own meaning. So when I was 28, I was a psychiatry resident at a prestigious university in California, and I had done all the things that you were supposed to do as a good Indian girl. I had gone to good schools, I'd become a doctor, I'd gotten married, So I checked all the the boxes, and I was finally saying to myself, okay, now I can figure out how to be happy. Like, now I'm allowed to try and be happy. Um, And, yeah, of course, long story short, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, But the reason that it didn't work was because I had constructed my whole life based on society's values, based on my parents' values, which were not bad values. Again, just they weren't mine, right? I didn't know what my values were. And then on top of that, I was working in a medical system, training to become a psychiatrist, and I was really confused. I had all these questions. I didn't understand why somebody who came in with the diagnosis of major depressive disorder was able to get their insurance to pay for their hospital stay. But if somebody had the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, the insurance company wouldn't pay. I was confused by the fact that when somebody came into the ER and they didn't have housing, you know, all I could do was offer Zoloft, right? But I had no tools in my tool belt to help them actually get housing. And I also recognize this is a very naive and privileged way to come to medicine, but that's, that's where I was. I had thought becoming a doctor meant that I would be able to help every single patient who was in front of me with every single one of their problems. And unfortunately, that just was not true, and I was really angry. So I blew it all up. I left my marriage. I moved into a commune in San Francisco, a wellness commune, and pretty soon after that, I dropped out of residency. And I spent two years with this group, um, and this was a group that was very focused on meditation, spirituality, sexuality. I came to find out years later that that really it is a cult and it, it's hard for me now to even kind of say that word and talk about it, but that's there and it wasn't all bad during that time i got to do some really, really interesting research, uh, learning about the neuroscience of female orgasm and and working at a lab, one of only two labs in the country that puts people in fMRI machines and looks at the brain. So I, I got a lot professionally and personally out of this time in my life, but after two years, I came to understand that there's just as many hypocrisies and inconsistencies in the wellness world as there are in mainstream medicine, And again, oppression and misogyny, they make you feel small, they make you feel bad. No matter what continent you live on, no matter what system you're in, no matter the label of the Ivy League school, no matter the brand of the law firm that you work for or the wellness group that you're part of, right? These are forces that are embedded in every single aspect of our lives, and you can't run away from them. Because when the solution is commercial, there's no chance for us to get to collective change. But when the solution is personal, then we have a fighting chance of being able to get to change. So now we're at act three. And in act three, I share with you all A solution. And I say a solution because there's no one solution, right? When you believe that there's only one answer, that's when you get into trouble. So this solution, this is is one answer, this is one way to think about it, but there's plenty of ways that you can think about it. So I started thinking more about and reading more about hedonic versus eudaimonic well-being. Hedonic well-being is a type of well-being that's very focused on pleasure. In the hedonic well-being framework, well-being and happiness is equated with feeling good. So in order to feel good, you are moving away from bad feelings, hard decisions, and seeking relief in whether it is, you know, the... um, luxury retreat that you're going on, whether it's the um, chocolate bar that you're eating, right? It's the escape that has you feel good. That's hedonic well-being. And again, in, in that framework, you're saying that in order to live a good life, you have to be happy all the time. And we all know that that's obviously not possible. Not only is it not possible, it also means that you're running away from the hard stuff, you're running away from the conflicts, the internal conflicts that you have to resolve to get to a place of meaning and to understand what your priorities are. So that's where we come to eudaimonic well-being. Eudaimonic well-being says that a life centered on meaning and what matters most to you is a well-lived life. And the research shows that people who are able to identify and verbalize their values, what matters most to them, what they derive meaning from, and are then able to take a step further and align their behaviors and their relationships and their activities with that internal meaning, those people generally report more happiness report that they feel better, uh, do better in terms of physical and mental health. So the problem, or the difficult part with this, is understanding, well, what do I really care about? What really matters for me, right? And as I've shared here today, especially for women, it's so tough because you're constantly fending off all of these other systemic forces and opinions, And judgments. So I often find as I'm teaching about real self-care and talking to my patients or or working with people in Gemma, I find that when you ask folks, what are your values? One of two things happens. Either they freeze up or they give you this really canned response. And it's like, well, I value my family. And it's kind of like, okay, great. Like we all value our families. Like that's, that's not helpful. (laughs) Why do you value your family? How do you value your family, right? What does that actually mean to you? What does that look like when you're embodying that value? A value isn't a noun, it's an adverb or an adjective. So my book, Real Self-Care, is a framework for grappling with these questions of what really matters to me. What do I really value? Because you can't come to it head on. First, you have to do some internal work that allows you to be, even be able to get to a place where you can ask that question of yourself and get an honest, truthful answer. So I'm going to share the four principles of real self-care. And then in the QA, we can dive a little bit deeper into how to implement these. And I'll answer more questions around, um, around the four kind of um, principles. So principle one of real self-care setting boundaries and learning how to deal with guilt principle two of real self-care talking to yourself with compassion principle three of real self-care this is the hardest one identifying your values and then actually making decisions aligned with your values not your mom's values not your best friend's values but your values and then principle four the last one Remembering that this is power. So I want to come back to Sanjana and Michaela as we wrap up. So Sanjana, remember, was the woman in India, in the village outside of Bangalore, who had the three daughters, who was brave and worried about coming to get treatment for her depression. A really interesting thing happened once she started getting treatment and feeling better. She... Um, started whispering in her family, in her community, she started whispering to others, one or two people, that she had come to get help, that she was taking medication. And you know, she was waiting to be ostracized, to be shamed, to be kicked out. And instead, the response was, me too, (laughs) I'm taking medication too. I went to that same clinic. And she was like, wow, oh my gosh. Other women are struggling. Other women are, are getting help. I'm not a weirdo, right? So she t- started being more bold with this and open about the fact that she, calling it depression, saying that she was taking medication, saying that she took a bus once, two buses, once a month to come talk to somebody to get help and that it really helped her. And um, when young women from the village would come to get Advice from her about, you know, their husband that was maybe drinking too much, or maybe their mother-in-law who was mean. Um, Sanjana would, you know, give them advice, but she'd also make sure to mention about this clinic and about how she'd gotten help and how it really worked. So that's compassion, that's power, and that's how change really happens. Again, when wellness is commercial, we can never get to collective change. But when wellness is something that is a personal choice where it's actually about you changing your behavior and how you show up in your community, then we have a chance. And so Michaela, the the professional woman from Washington DC who was seeing me for her OCD and whose father had to move in. Um, So we were grappling with how does she, can she take care of herself? What does she do? So Michaela's real self-care was that she ended up taking a leave of absence from her job. And she was open that it was a mental health leave of absence. And during that time, we worked together more closely. She was able to investigate Medicare benefits, which is a terrible thing to have to (laughs) think about, right? But she was able to like get things covered for her dad and really sort through all that. She also was brave enough to confront both of her brothers and ask that they pitch in financially. And when she went back to work, she was bracing for this impact of maybe getting demoted, pushed out, especially as a black woman in corporate America. You know, she was really worried, and she had reason to be. That's not, that wasn't in her head. That was a real worry. But instead, she connected with another colleague who had a son that had OCD, and they started a little kind of informal support group for other, for, for other folks at the, her workplace that were navigating taking care of folks with mental health issues in their own family navigating trying to get benefits leave all this stuff and when she went up for her next performance review her bosses actually said that she was getting a promotion and one of the reasons that she was getting the promotion was because they felt like through her advocacy and work inside the organization that she had really shifted the culture and that it was really important that she had done that it was valued so again compassion, power, agency, right? Shifting her own behavior, taking a risk. Again, these are, for sure, these are risks. But this led to a cascade effect within her own organization. So I wanna wrap up here and, again, come back to the fact that for well-being to make a systemic impact, we all have to take responsibility for our own choices and recognize that no matter where you are in your life, no matter what your social constraints are, there's always a path to make a different choice. And I'm not saying that path is easy. No, absolutely not. It's really hard. It took me a decade to get to a place where I felt like I'm living closer to my values. And it's always a work in progress, too. It's never one and done. It's not something that you can just check off the list and say, OK, everything's great. Right now, in my life, I'm balancing the fact that I'm on a book tour, I run a practice and see patients, I have a business, Gemma, and I also have an almost one-year-old son <laughs> who is at home. And, and as I'm wrapping up, I want to also just give a shout out and a thank you to my, my own partner, Justin, who is home right now in Austin, Texas, taking care of our son um, so that I can be here, um, you know, chasing my wild dreams and um, speaking to folks and, and hopefully educating and imparting some of what I've learned. But that's that's only possible because he's willing to chip in. And, and not, I shouldn't say chip in. He's willing to do more than 50%. <laughs> um, I want to end with a quote from Audre Lorde. For those of you who who don't know Audre Lorde, Audre Lorde is a black, queer, feminist thinker who in the 1950s and 60s coined the phrase, self-care is self-preservation. Audre Lorde said, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change thank you so much
1: and now dr Luxman, if you're ready i'll present the questions from the audience in your book you you refer to the self-care industrial complex, and you speak of the tyranny of self-care. Can you describe what you're, what you're referring to when you talk of, of, like that about self-care?
2: Yeah, the tyranny of self-care is a term that I started using a couple of years ago to describe that very frequent story that I heard in my practice of the woman who comes in and says, I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, and I feel like it's my fault because I don't go to yoga, I don't meditate, I don't do any of that stuff that all the experts are telling me that I'm supposed to do to feel better. And I realized that the prescribed solutions that were coming from the outside, they don't work because they're another thing on the to-do list. And especially for women, especially for marginalized groups, especially, I'll say for myself and most of my patients who are in that age range where maybe you have young kids that you're taking care of, you're trying to balance a career, maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents as well, there's no time. There's just no time. And so when the solution is another thing to do, that's where it feels like a burden. That's why it's called the tyranny, right? Because it's just another thing on the list. And then you feel bad because you don't have time to get to it, and if you do get to it, then you feel guilty that you're not doing something else. Here's another perfect example. Um, And this ties into kind of the the self-care industrial complex, right, when you finally work up the courage to take a half day off from work and say, okay, I'm gonna drop $200 and get a massage, right, I'm gonna really do this for myself, and then you spend the whole time on the massage table worried, about the to-do list, and then you're wondering, like, gosh, I think there's only like 20 minutes left. I've wasted this. I just spent $200. You leave kind of feeling a little bit worse than (laughs) when you got into the massage, and then you come back to your desk, and you have 100 emails that you're supposed to get to that you feel like you have to catch up for all of the productivity. Again, what I'm pointing to here is when the solution is about the individual, right, and the way that they're supposed to solve this problem and yet still meet all of the demands on their time, whether that is as a parent, whether that's as an employee, whether that is as an entrepreneur and a business owner, right? No matter the context, right, it's still sort of like the same map that we find ourselves in.
1: In your book, you quote Jessica Calarco, uh, and you know which quote I'm heading toward. (laughs) Other societies have social Safety networks. The U.S. has women. <laughs> uh, I, I hear a lot of laughter in the room. Can you describe? Uh, <laughs> you understand that, huh? Could you describe what what she was getting at there?
2: Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes, and it came from Ann Helen Peterson's Substack Culture Study, which is one of my favorite reads. Um, and and. Jessica Clarko is a sociologist whose work is incredible. So if you don't know her, definitely Google her, look up. Um, she's written a, ton, a, a couple books. So I'll share a statistic that gets to that the heart of that quote. Um, in Sweden, they did a research study where they offered new dads one month of flexible paid parental leave that new dads could take at any time they wanted. It didn't have to be the full month. They could apply it you know, for the doctor's visits, the pediatrician appointments. All They could use it however they wanted. And when they offered that 30 days of paid flexible paternity leave, the number of anti-anxiety prescriptions for moms went down by 26%. And I'm not sharing this to demonize psychiatric medications. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe Zoloft all the time, and I actually take Zoloft myself. So I'm not saying that medication isn't useful and needed. Of course it is, because depression is real, and it's a neurobiologic condition. And when we support families, when we actually invest as a country in, if we were to, I should say, if we were to invest as a country in social services, things like federally mandated paid parental leave, like affordable, universal, accessible childcare, women feel better. They do better, Uh, and and there are plenty of case examples all over the world where that does happen. And in America, because of a number of issues that forum speakers, past forum speakers understand much better than I do, That has never been the case, right, because we have this individualistic pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps mentality that views that collective support, that community support as um, something to be ashamed of or something that is a privilege or that you should buy, you know, you should earn enough individual wealth that you can make that happen. But we shouldn't offer that for everybody. Um, and instead, like Jessica said, we just have mothers that are picking up the slack.
1: I know in, in overseas development work, uh, certainly that we do through the church, we often focus on assisting women, because when women do well, the world does well. Now, uh, what's standing in the way of that uh, approach to life together here in the US? Uh, <laughs> in a nutshell
2: that's a big question um, um, you know so I'm a psychiatrist that specializes in women's mental health and the technical term for my training and what I do is perinatal psychiatrist so I focus in this pregnancy postpartum period and what I've come to understand is that women's mental health maternal mental health is a social justice issue because, (laughs) thank you, (laughs) Um, just take the the small um, statistic and, and, and fact, that when a new mom is able to get four to six consecutive hours of sleep in the postpartum period, she has less risk of developing postpartum depression. That's real. That's science. But how do you get four to six hours of consecutive sleep, right? Do you have a partner that can help you? Do you have grandparents that are available for help in that postpartum period? Um, what are your feeding choices? Do you feel like you have to breastfeed or do you think that you can actually supplement with formula, right? The ability to make that choice is totally impacted by social determinants of health. So I, I am getting to your question, Tim, um, but I, I, when I first started writing Real Self-Care, I was coming to this from, I guess you could say a feminist lens. And one of the things that I learned during this period of time, because I started writing in 2018. And so it was, I was writing during the pandemic. Um, I was writing as I was going through IVF to get pregnant. And I was writing through George Floyd and everything that was happening in the world. And I have come to understand that my message for real self-care, the feminist message, must be intersectional too. Because this isn't just about capitalism, it's also about white supremacy. It's about the fact that the entire American economy was built on a slavery model, right? Where you're extracting productivity from a group of people who are lower in the caste system. You know, I mentioned caste in my remarks, and that was on purpose. Um, So I'm coming to understand and I will say I'm, I'm kind of remedial here. I looked to my colleagues um, who are much more skilled in talking about these things to understand how it all comes together for women's mental health. But I, I strongly believe that it does. And I think when we keep women's mental health siloed in the gender space, it's actually a disadvantage for us. Uh, we need, we need to be talking about race. We need to be talking about identity. We need to be talking about men, right? We need to be talking about all of that in the same conversation. And I think that's how we move towards change. Um, But I unfortunately don't have a solution for how that happens. And that's why I will never run for office. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: you're, You're wanting to move the conversation to an internal place as opposed to all these external realities that oppress women particularly? Yes. 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 (laughs) Okay, I got it. Uh, One of our questioners says, for people who can't outrun their stress, and I guess there are a few of us here who feel that way, and have such a full plate, what do you recommend as the first step? Like if even setting boundaries seems impossible?
2: Yes, thank you for this question. It's an important one that I've come to understand um, as I've been talking about real self-care because so many of the folks that are reading this book are drowning in the stress and the demands. Um, There's actually a a quiz in the book that's called the Real Self-Care Thermometer that you can take and answer the questions. It was very fun for me to write. It was kind of like those old-time Cosmo quizzes where you answer the questions. And um, there's three levels. There's red, yellow, and green, Red is bad, green is good. Um, most people that read the book are probably going to fall in the red and yellow. And I will say I haven't taken the quiz for since the book has come out, and I imagine that I probably am in the yellow right now. So full disclosure. Um, if you're in the red or yellow, and you're in that burnout place, that place where every decision feels so hard, um, then you have to start with boundaries. The only place to start is boundaries. And I know everybody talks about boundaries. We hear boundaries all the time. You know, every therapist on Instagram is talking about boundaries. The reason that everybody's talking about it is because it's, it's hard to do. My framework for boundaries is a little bit different. So when I first came on the faculty at George Washington University, my mentor took me out for lunch. This was in 2016. And she gave me a piece of advice. She said, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail, listen to what they say, and then decide. So sometimes it's the front desk, and they just had like insurance paperwork that they needed me to fill out, and I could say, okay, let me finish what I'm doing, and I'll come at the end of the day. Sometimes it's a patient who I know if she even goes one day without her stimulant medication... Her ADHD is going to be so bad that she could lose her job. Okay, let me right away put that refill in, right? I get to decide. So my boundary is in the pause. It's the pause that is the boundary. And then you can say yes, you can say no, or you can negotiate. A boundary isn't always no, right? It's not a brick wall. That's not a healthy boundary. A healthy boundary is like one of those trampoline nets. It's flexible. And depending on your skin color, depending on your gender identity, depending on how much money you have, no is not always available. No always comes with a cost, for sure, whether that's a financial cost or emotional cost, but the pause, you, the pause is always available. And maybe you can't say no right now to what that is, to the request, but maybe you can say for yourself, okay, I, my goal is a year from now, I want to be in a place where no is possible, right? So what do I have to do now to start constructing my life and problem solving so that no is available to me a year from now?
1: A follow-up question from one of our listeners. So I'm trying to set boundaries. I'm asking for help. No one is stepping up to help. The consequences are real for loved ones. What do you recommend?
2: Yes. So I would have a couple follow-up questions, which whoever asked this, like, you, know, you can't answer right now, but this is what I would think about. Um, how are you asking for help? Are you really asking? Are you asking in a way that is angry or stressed out? Are you asking in a, in a way that pushes people further? Or are you asking in a way that actually allows the person who's on the other side to say yes? Are you able to receive help, like actually receive it? Um, I had a, a, and and in Real Self-Care, I talk about how, as women, we've been conditioned to believe that doing everything ourselves is a badge of honor. And we don't have practice receiving help, receiving support. Usually, motherhood is the first time, for many of my patients in their life, where you really can't do it alone. You have to be able to lean on others. And so for folks who have trouble with that, or if you don't have an active community, right, if you don't have a church, right, if you don't have a group of friends, um, you have to start somewhere. You have to learn to practice. So one takeaway or suggestion would be start asking for help in low-stakes situations, like when you don't even actually need it, but just as practice um, and see what it feels like so then you won't be so frustrated when you actually do need it and the person says no. So it's, it's like you're, you're learning the skill and learning how to regulate your own emotions when you're doing the asking.
1: In your book, you had a startling statistic. Uh, much of what you're working with and talking about today and writing about has to do with young younger women and the pressures uh, in that at that stage of life. But you also said that uh, it gets harder for women in some ways. You said one, a study shows that one in four women in the U.S., over 60, are being treated for depression. I think that was the, the stat. And we have a few women in that age range here. Uh, <laughs> tell us tell us what, what you would, uh, you know, how you would advise a person in such a situation.
2: Oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> um, I think what you're talking about, Tim, is we're getting to this question of um, the line between a mental health condition like depression, which is real, again, like we talked about that. It's good to get treatment for depression. And there are social forces that contribute to the fact that the rates of depression in women... Are double the rates of depression in men, cis hetero men. So a lot of the work that I do with my patients is, like these are folks who are very high-functioning, you know, it's like doctors, lawyers, professionals that struggle with either depression or anxiety and are taking medication and we're doing therapy and the work is sort of sorting through when is it my depression and is my depression under control, and then what are the choices that I can make in my own life that help my mental health, right? That don't make it worse, and that's not so. So wellness or self help book is never a treatment for depression, right? In my in real self care, I, I have little um bullets about like when to seek professional psychiatric help so there's a way where the the solution has to be complementary right and and medication can be one piece of that um exercise can be one piece of that talking to somebody whether that's a therapist or or a pastor or a support group can be one piece of that Um, and then doing this work of real self-care with the boundaries and compassion and values, that's another piece of that, but no one thing alone solves everything.
1: Here's a question that does not come from me, but it's (laughs) pertinent. Can you talk about mental health and the transition from professional life to retirement? (laughs) I'm listening.
2: (laughs) Um, this is a great question. So, uh, my, my psychoanalyst, my therapist, um, is retiring in December of this year and she, I've been seeing her for seven, seven years, um, multiple times a week. Um, and so this question makes me think of that. I think it's a, obviously I'm coming from a, a different perspective as a 39 year old who's kind of in a different stage, but I see it as Like any life transition, there's grief, there's aspects that you're grieving, and then there are aspects and experiences that you're looking forward to, that feel expansive, right? That feel like new beginnings. Um, And I think for most folks in that transition space, there is a mix of that grief and that excitement. And they both, go together, right? They're intertwined. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try and make it black and white, like pretend that there's not grief around it, right? Allowing yourself to feel the grief of like the season that is closing is really important. And and one of the ways to work with that grief, and when I say grief, like little g grief, right? Is um, in rituals, in making meaning, right? How do you want to end out this chapter? What is the symbolism what looking back ten years from now, how do I, how do I have wanted to show how did I want to show up? right? What can I do to demarcate this for myself and make it mean something? Um, and then I think that that new the, the excitement side, the creative, expansive side, depending on your personality, everybody has a different way of coming to that. For some folks, it's going to be I'm going to pour myself in lots of different activities. I'm gonna have lots of structure, I need that, right? For other folks, what's gonna feel better is having lots of open space and open time and just seeing what comes up. So I don't think there's like one individual prescription or solution, it's more about uh, allowing yourself to be with both of those kind of contradictory emotional states.
1: Thank you, that was helpful, appreciate it. (laughs) let, let me ask you about the role of religion and ritual. You you come from a Hindu background yourself. Uh, where do, is religion perpetuating the self-care tyranny, or is it helpful, or is it a mixed bag?
2: Yeah. I think that in my demographic, we have... Uh, wellness has become sort of cult-like and and religious-like, especially when we're looking at social media and and through the pandemic, how people have lost so much as it comes to social life and community ties. Um, We see kind of a longing for not only finding answers to the normal problems of daily life, but also a longing to have these people, these experts, these celebrities, these influencers in our lives handing down sort of the answer or the solution, um, in in terms of ritual, I think when I think about rituals, the first thing is that comes to my mind is is meaning, right? A rit- ritual is about the meaning that you make of it, um, and and that is so important, right? There's no prescription for some for the correct ritual. It's it's more about the internal language that you use to describe to yourself why it's important to you. Um, And right now, we live in a world that is so externally focused. And and I will say, personally, myself, I've struggled with this on the book launch, like how to balance sort of, you know, me being a human, a person who's nervous and and performing in a new way and doing new things um, while also being... You know, on social media, having to do this media stuff, right? And, and so this, there, there, there's always this kind of contradiction. And so I think ritual and symbolism and meaning is a way to find footing in that. I don't have a clear answer for you, though, Tim, about religion. I think that's something that I still um, is a question mark for me. I was I was raised Hindu um, and um, spent. A lot of time in in Hindu temples and um, had a lot of Hindu rituals applied to me as a child Um, and I really enjoyed the community and the space that temples provided but I've moved away from that now and I haven't found kind of a replacement and I think a lot of people at least in terms of uh, in my generation have similar feelings of um, missing some aspect of that Uh, and but not quite knowing exactly what the new thing is and I think that's where community comes in Um, that's where like having real community authentic community that's healthy um, I think can fill some of that role.
1: Last question about 30 seconds you have here Um, (laughs) with the enormous uh, trauma we've all been through uh, a variety of layers of it uh, and the mental health crisis we know is around are, are you hopeful optimistic and you do a, a difference between those two words uh, can you describe quickly yeah. how you're feeling about the world in terms of mental health
2: yeah um so i'm hopeful not optimistic <laughs> hopeful meaning that i recognize that it's, there's so many problems. There's so many obstacles to getting to change. Um, I, I'm not glass half full. I'm, I'm more like, I know that this is really hard, but I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't have found a Gemma. I wouldn't have done the work that I'm doing and come back to psychiatry if I didn't really believe that it's up to us to fix it. It really is up to us. And, um, to me that that's a hopeful message.
0: Good. Thank you, Pooja Lakshman. Thank you so much for joining us for this Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. A reminder that you can hear more than 40 years worth of our programs on our website, westminsterforum.org. Our moderator is Tim Hart Anderson. Our audio engineer is Keith Kopacz. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brats. I'm the forum's director, Tane Danger. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.